And good morning to you. I have the privilege of uh, sharing the word this morning, and we're continuing through our study across the scripture, looking at God's purpose for mankind and his working uh, in and among and throughout the human race in all these years. And I understand we've finished through the book of Judges and the short book of Ruth, which is about the same time period. And now we're looking uh, into the period of the kings. And a few weeks ago when Ryan asked if I would share on this particular topic, uh, he said, I want you to deal with Samuel and uh, Saul. And I said, okay. And then a day or two later we were talking and maybe we ought to include David. And then I got to adding up. I've preached through the life of David uh, two different occasions in my ministry, about uh, 30-some messages. I preached through Samuel, uh, the life of Samuel, in about 12 messages and four or five times on Saul. So I said, I've got 50 or 60 messages right down to one this morning. So, and as soon as I'm finished, uh, Bob Yelberg's going to come on Friday night and begin to share the... Well, we'll try to do a little better than that. Uh, we're only going to be uh, in a certain portion. 1 Samuel chapter 8. So if you take your Bible and just uh, get through the first five, that's the Pentateuch, Pentateuch, the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you have Joshua, we've been through there, and Judges the short book of Ruth, and then we're at 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles are basically ch- uh, books dealing with the uh, kingdom uh, of Israel. And we're going to be at chapter 8 through about chapter 16. So just in that portion, and I'll be re- referencing some of those verses, and you can, uh, uh, you don't have to turn to every one, but that's pretty much where we're going to be this morning. I'm going to kind of... Uh, end with David. And the story of David uh, begins in the middle of another story. And most stories do, don't they? We never get a clean start in life. And we arrive and the page seems to be kind of smudged over. Other things are going on. Other things have happened. We talk about in this, our vernacular, carrying baggage. Other things have happened and occurred. And we, we kind of... Uh, Uh, find that as we go through life. Now in 1 Samuel 16, and I'm kind of at the end of where I'm going to start this morning, in verse 14 it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So at that point we're uh, seeing that the mind and the emotions were in chaos. Saul, the first king of Israel, uh, is in a mental uh, mess total chaos emotionally. But he didn't begin that way. G. Frederick Owen in his book Abraham to the Middle East describes these ancient times perfectly in one sentence when he says, the people were on a long drift from God. Now, if you remember just historically some uh, uh, historical facts, uh, information here, Eli, who was the high priest in Israel, and his wicked sons, and they were long gone. And Samuel, the prophet, the last judge, he kind of transitions and bridges the gap here. A judge, a priest, a prophet. Samuel was now an old man. And the people had heard all the stories about back in the day, the way it was. 
when Israel was a great nation, and about the years when Samuel was in the zenith of his career, and, and Samuel had been used to lead the uh, Israelites to subdue the Philistines and judge the land, but most of the people now didn't know anything about that personally. They just heard about the good old days and the way it used to be. And they only knew Samuel now as an old man. And he had appointed his sons to be judge in his place, and what a mistake that was. Chapter 8 at verse 1. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. But the people were disillusioned. They wanted something done about it. They wanted a king. They've never had a king. They did have a king and God Almighty. He was their king. He desired to be their king. But they wanted to be like everyone else. In verse 19 of chapter 8, the people refused to listen to Samuel. And he kind of explained it. He said, you really don't want a king. Look at verse 11. This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He'll take your sons. He'll make them serve with his chariots and horses. They'll run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, others to plow his ground and reap his harvest, others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He'll take it on and on and goes. He said, you don't want a king? Well, they wanted to be like everybody else. Now, a democracy, at least they didn't want a democracy. See, a democracy isn't the best form of government. The best form of government is a kingdom if you have a good king. A kingship with an absolutely good king. A, a king that is so wise that all of the wisdom of his subjects put together is not equal to the wisdom he possesses. That would be a good king over a good kingdom. A king that is so good that his goodness exceeds the benevolence of the most faithful people in his, subject, in his kingdom. A king whose plans are adopted to the welfare of his subjects, that the only decisions he makes are for the benefits of his subjects in his kingdom. That's just good politics. And they had a king like that. They had God Almighty. He was all of those things, wiser than all, more compassionate than all. And everything he did was for their welfare. And I'll tell you, if you have a king like that, then his demands deserve the utmost obedience from his subjects, right? Because everything he says is for our betterment. So whatever he says for us to do or not do, we should heed because all he has is our best interests at heart. But Samuel was an old man. His sons didn't walk in his ways. And they wanted to be like other nations. So we want a king. Now, how do you pick a king? Number one, if you fill in the little blanks on the back of the bulletin, looking good. That's their number one. Well, people always want to be like everybody else, right? We're doing a study right now in the youth group on Sunday nights on comparisons. And we found that a comparison is a lose-lose proposition. We visited the land of Ur. Taller, 
prettier, smarter. There's no end to it. You can't win. And ultimately, you like to get to est. Tall est. Smart est. And yet, that's what people strive after. That's where Israel was. They didn't want to wait on God. They wanted to be like other people. So God let them have exactly what they wanted. And what they wanted is somebody that looked good. That's how people choose kings. They go for somebody that looks good. And so Saul enters the story magnificently. His stature was compelling. His humility endeared him to the people. Verse, uh, chapter 9, there was a Benjamite, a man of standing whose name was Kish. Verse 2, Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. He was in the land of Ur. And the people even said over in chapter 10 at verse 24, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him in all, among all the people. Now, don't forget, you say, well, if God gave him a king, then it must have been a good thing. Because Hosea the prophet reminds us in the 13th chapter of Hosea, at verse 11, God comes on the scene and says, in my anger, I gave you a king, and in my wrath, I took him away. God was not happy about this. He wasn't happy about the arrangement, but he acquiesced to their desires, maybe to show them what he knew all along. But they were enthusiastic about it. They were shouting their approval, long live the king, long live the king. Everything about him was promising. Everything began well for Saul. The honor and responsibility of being chosen Israel's first king didn't go to his head. I mean, he kept right on doing his chores on the farm. Now, look at verse 3, chapter 9. Now, the donkeys belonging to Saul's father uh, were lost. Kish said to his son, Saul, take one of the servants with you. Go look for the donkeys. I mean, this king thing didn't go to his head, right? He's still on the chores. He's still under his father's authority. He's still doing the work on the farm. So, whatever else king meant to Saul, it certainly didn't mean privilege. It didn't mean exemption from his chores and from his responsibilities. And a matter of fact, as king, when the first crisis of his reign came and the call went out to deliver Jabesh Gilead in a military expedition, (coughs) the people came out one and all in chapter 11. And the first military effort that he led against the Ammonites was a resounding success. And the defeat of the Ammonites were followed by victory after victory after victory over the Philistines, over the Amalekites, and things were just going well. People would have said, our country is finally there. We're finally back. Everything's going well in our country. And after those victories, he was riding high on the enthusiasm of his supporters. And at one point, the cry went up, but remember, Saul, when we wanted you as king, there were some that didn't want a king. They wanted God to say, God's all you guys remnant, don't they? Let's purge them out of the group. Let's purge those troublemakers, they're called, out of the group. And Paul was, uh, Saul was very gracious. And Saul said, no, no, we're not going to do that. So very gracious, very generous in exercising his, his power. So it started out looking good. 
Number two, deceiving appearances. And although Saul continued to assert superiority over his enemies on every front, 1 Samuel 14, verse 47 says, I mean, he was cleaning up left and right. After Saul had assumed rule over Israel, he fought against their enemies on every side, Moab, the Ammonites, Edom, the kings of Zobah, Philistine. Wherever he turned, he inflicted punishment on them. I mean, he was cleaning house. Things were looking good. But in spite of all of that, things were not well. We begin to pick up indications that Saul, for all his charm and all his charisma, wasn't that much interested in God. He became self-absorbed in the work of being king. Now, the work doesn't seem to have suffered very much. I mean, the campaigns against the Philistines at Michmash, the Amalekites over in the Sinai, they were totally decisive. But in each instance, Samuel, the prophet, the priest, the last judge, he had to confront Saul with an act of disobedience. And it took place in the course of carrying out his work. Now, neither act of disobedience appeared to be sinful. There was no immorality involved. There was no injustice involved. Both of them actually made perfect sense in military strategy. Both acts were dictated by good military strategy. But listen, your worldview, whatever that is, and your worldview is that which enables you to make the decisions you make in life. And we hear a lot about biblical worldview. And if your worldview isn't resting on a biblical foundation... You're going to be in the same peril that Saul found himself. And both of his disobedient acts involved, interestingly, worship. In the case of the Philistine disobedience, remember that story that Saul was going to go to battle against the Philistines, and Samuel was not going to be there. And Samuel said, Saul, I'll be there in time to offer the sacrifice. Don't do anything until I get there and offer the sacrifice. Saul couldn't offer the sacrifice. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't allowed. He wasn't permitted. But he was getting antsy. Where is Samuel? He should be here by now. And the people and the military is getting jittery. I better offer the sacrifice and let them know that everything's all right. And so he did. Saul offered the sacrifice. Now, follow, follow what he was thinking. This is a warped worldview. Saul disobeyed God to get the fulfillment of God's promise to him. He broke the law so that his troops would think well of him, so that his troops would be happy with him. But they were told that they would have success if they were obedient. That's unbelievable. Saul is thinking, I can be disobedient, I'm going to get the same outcome as if I were obedient. Do you understand that? Paul would have had the thought that it doesn't matter if I pray 
with my children or have devotional time with them. It doesn't matter if I really study the Bible. It doesn't matter if I ignore God's direction for spiritual discipline. It doesn't matter if I give unto the Lord. It doesn't matter if I serve. I'm going to have the same outcome as those that do. That's unbelievable. Isn't it? People with this shattered, this, this cracked worldview that thinks, I can live like I want to live. I can live in a same-sex relationship. I can live outside the bonds of marital uh, uh, vows with another. I can do this. I can do that. I don't have to give. I can do all. And I'm going to get the same blessing as those that are listening to the Word of God. Is that not unbelievable? In the case of the Amalekite disobedience, Saul, who had been told by God, remember the Amalekites, and there's a, I actually did a series on the Amalekites one time, and, and uh, the, the difficulty that God had with them, and the people of Israel had with them, and all the way through. And the time had come for them to be eradicated. I mean, their disobedience, their wickedness, had just overflowed the cup of God's grace and God's patience with them. And they had chance after chance after chance. And so Saul was told, go out and utterly destroy the Amalekites. I want you to kill every man, woman, child, animal. Nothing is to be left totally destroyed. But Saul decided, some of these animals look pretty good. Well, these are, these are fine-looking lambs, fine-looking livestock. I'm going to just share the spoils with my people. And the people loved him. Let's just keep the best of the animal. Now, if God says something is not good at all, rotten to the core, what good can you find in that? If God said everything is wicked, how can you find any best? There's nothing best. And Saul says, I'm keeping the best. He even kept Agag, the king, alive. And Samuel confronts him. And because of that, Saul is removed as king. And Samuel is kind of reprimanding me. He says, Saul, God sent you on a little, on a mission. Chapter 15, verse 18, God sent you on a mission. Some translations have journey. It's like a walk in the park. He didn't even call it a battle. This is going to be easy. Saul! And Saul said, in essence, I've done all I'm going to do. I've done all I want to do. But that's not the point. What does God say? What has God spoken? He was ready again to side with the people. He wanted the people happy. He wanted to be popular with the people. He, it was the people that were motivating him, not God. Even though it appeared that worship of God motivated those actions... They weren't primarily concerned with God. They were motivated by Saul's concern for the people. And I'm telling you, if a pastor ever gets in a position, elders ever get in a position that our primary concern is the people and not God, you're in trouble. What does God want? What does God say? Peacekeeping and peacemaking are two totally different things. 
You can be in a committee, you can be in a board, and you know there's always somebody that's extroverted, always somebody that talks, always somebody that has an opinion, always somebody that presents their case, and you know they, they get a little on edge and everything, and you're sitting there thinking, I don't really agree with that, I don't really think that, but I don't know if I say anything, they're going to get upset, or they're going to start howling, and I'll just try to keep the peace, and you don't say anything. All you've done is, is uh, exasperated the problem. You, you, you've continued the problem. You've en- enabled the problem. That's not, that's, peacekeeping is not peacemaking. I don't have time to go into that this morning. <laughs> Paul thinks, I just want to keep the people united. I just want to keep the people focused. I just want to keep the people. I don't want people leaving my church. I don't want people leaving, because there goes my, I got to keep the people happy. The people loomed large in Saul's consideration, far larger than God did. And happy, and you can talk to people. Talk to people in, in, in same-sex marriages. Talk to people that are living together. Talk to people, and they'll say we're happy. Happy is not the same as good. You understand that? People in alternative lifestyles, we're happy. Happy is not good. Saul was trying to do good work, and he saw bringing God into it as a way. To be a good king, but bringing God into something reverses reality. John MacArthur uh, has written a book called Hard to Believe. And in that book, he shares a, a letter. A person who had once professed Christ wrote me a letter saying, Your Jesus didn't work. My husband left me, my son's in the hospital, and I have a terminal illness. Your Jesus didn't work. And then he provides this comment. The shallow follower has no sense of the spiritual, the eternal and divine. No particular love for God or attachment to Jesus Christ. The shallow Christian lives for the here and now, and if Jesus doesn't deliver, that's the end of it. So how is it supposed to work? What what did God really intend? What did God have in mind? And so number three is working relationship. Working relationship. What kind of relationship is God intending to see happen in his people? Well, Saul has made a mess of things. He began, he began given a job to do, he ruined it. And so David is now assigned to do what Saul had done badly. And Samuel says that, Saul, you are no longer going to be king, I'm anointing a new king. And he anoints David. David is anointed by Saul to be king. But you know he wasn't recognized as king for another 20 years? For 20 years he was a king, but didn't look like a king. As a matter of fact, his first job as king was to serve a bad king. He entered the court of Saul as a servant. Yet to David, listen, being a servant wasn't the opposite of being the king. For David, serving in itself was ruling. The servant was, at the same time, king. And aren't we a kingdom of what? Priests. A kingdom. Kings. But servants. Jesus, in whom we worship this morning as king, spent most of his earthly life where? In a carpenter shop. Ruling is what we do, but serving is the way we do it. And having a good job doesn't mean we're going to do it well. Saul had a great job, he just didn't do it well. 
having the right position doesn't guarantee righteousness. Being happy doesn't mean being good. Saul had a good work to do, but he failed. So you can't look at your job, don't look at, don't look at your position for righteousness. Saul and David were both defined by the anointing of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, here's the key. They had equally good work to do, but having good work doesn't mean they'll do good work. Jobs are important, things need to be done, but no job is perfectly suited to carry out God's purpose. The key is to be Spirit-anointed, and not getting the right job, getting in the right position, it's being Spirit-anointed. And you're better off being Spirit-anointed serving someone else than being in a better position. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 18, God provides the missing link needed to connect David to Saul in the throne. And you remember what happened? Someone happens to hear. Now Saul is still in the, in the palace. He's still on the throne. He's still pretending to be king, even though David's already been anointed. But David's just waiting on God. And so Saul's in that state, and somebody finds out Saul's depressed. Really? And he's looking for somebody that could provide him with a little soothing music. And this guy that hears about it knows a fella who knows David. And he said, I know a guy that can do that. Verse 18 in chapter 16, I've seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He's a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well. He's a fine looking man. Oh, there they are again. That's Israel's criteria. Isn't it? And the Lord is with him. Now, that's not a bad resume, is it? There's seven things I see right here, and, and I'm going to leave you with these. Seven things, and we're, and we're going to be done. But I want you to look at this resume. I want you to look at what God is interested in, what God is looking at, what God is trying to develop in His people. Well, first of all, it says He knows how to play the harp. Now, the King James says He was cunning at playing. I like that. It just means He had a honed talent. He had something he was good at. He was good at playing a harp. He had, as we all do, something that could help somebody else. Keep that in mind. That's requirement number one. He had an ability, a honed talent, that could be used to benefit somebody else. You have that as well. You may not be able to play the harp. You may be able to make chocolate chip cookies. Same thing. Don't everybody run out and sign up for harp lessons. You've already got something you can do that can help somebody else. All right? That's number one. Hang on. Number two, he's a brave man. And the root in the Hebrew carries the idea of force as a great army, the force of a great army. So, in other words, David had resources to draw from. He had physical resources, and emotional resources, mental resources, spiritual resources. David was like a force to be reckoned with. He was a brave man. Number three, he was a warrior. Now, that Hebrew word indicates noteworthy accomplishments. Okay? He had a talent that he could use to benefit somebody else. He was like a force to reckon with because he had mental, emotional, spiritual, physical attributes. And he's a warrior. He had noteworthy accomplishments. I want to tell you something. 
When I was a freshman in, in school, freshman in high school, and I was on the basketball team, and the last thing we had to do after every basketball practice at night, the coach had us to go to the free throw line. We had to make 10 free throws in a row, then we could go home. Not shoot 10, you had to make 10 in a row. Now, he did give a little caveat that if you make 10, of course, you want to see if you can make 11, right? And so if you made 11 or 12 or 13 in a row, the guy behind you only had to make 7 or 8, depending on how many. You, you actually got, he got credit for some of your free throws. And I'll never forget this one night. And I was a pretty good free throw shooter, and, and I was sitting there, or standing there on the line, and you know, somebody's down there, and they throw it back. You didn't have to run and chase your ball. You know, one, two, three. No kidding. I can't say this because I'm in the pulpit, and God can strike me dead. I hit, <laughs> I hit 75 free throws in a row. It means the seven guys behind me got to shower, didn't even have to pick up a ball. The next year when Webster's Dictionary came out with that edition, under the, na under the word machine, it said, Rick Harris shooting basketballs. <laughs> I do, okay, Webster didn't, Webster didn't put that in. I just have to tell you. But here's the thing. Now, when I say that, as a freshman in high school, I hit 75 basketballs in a row. What's your response to that? Now, listen, don't, here's what it should be. So what? That'll, had I done that in the course of a season, I mean, game after game, I never missed it. I hit 75 free throws in the course of a season. Your response can be, so what? See, David might have hit 75 free throws in a row as far as I know. But it's not a noteworthy accomplishment. You see, a warrior is somebody that does things that mean something. This means that he had noteworthy, significant, important accomplishments. The bear and the lion that he dealt with as a shepherd boy were significant because they enabled him to experience greater things from God. Now listen, you're going to be electing elders in a few weeks, right? The annual meeting's coming up and you're going to elect elders. Test the elder candidates' ministries. 1 Timothy 3 gives you 11 or 12 qualifications, characteristics that an elder needs to possess. You go through that list, and if they meet those qualifications, then Paul says, test their ministries. All of those qualifications are empty words, if there isn't some noteworthy accomplishments they're building on, if they haven't done some, some important significant things and steps in ministry so that when they're elected, they can not only continue to grow, the church can continue to grow under that leadership. And he said the same thing for deacons. Deacons, just as you did the elders do for the deacons, do for your church leaders. So we can experience greater things for God. The track record, the blessings of the ministry. Test them, see what they are. Now, warriors. Number four, it says he speaks well. 
which means to separate mentally, to understand, so to be appropriate. You know, Proverbs 15 says, A man finds joy in giving an apt reply, and how good is a timely word. Yeah, it's somebody that that, that understands, uh, and they can say the appropriate thing that's necessary. Just, you know, there are some people that never say much, but when they do, everybody's listening. That's David. In 1 Samuel 17, we find the first recorded words that David spoke. And so here comes this little shepherd boy, and he's coming up, and you know the story about Goliath and being in the uh, arena and challenging Saul and Israel and, and, and all of that. And the first recorded word we have out of the mouth of this new king as a teenage boy says, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of God? Isn't that what, what we're after? That's what God's looking for. And then follow the character. Follow these character qualities and why they're so important. That's chapter 17, verse 26. In verse 32, he says, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Now, that's encouragement, isn't it? You've got this whole scaredy crowd. They don't know what's going on. Everything looks like it's a mess. And somebody steps up and says, Don't worry about a thing. I'll take care of it. That just gives you a little peace when you've got leaders that say, saying that, things like that, isn't it? No problem. Don't worry about it. We're on it. It's going to be resolved. And not just blowing smoke, but I mean actually out there doing it. So that's encouragement. Verse 34, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it down, rescued the sheep. That's testimony. That's his resume. That's what he's been doing. That's where he's been serving. That's what his ministry's been about. Check it out. He's not done yet. Verse 37, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. That's faith, isn't it? He does speak well, doesn't he? Well, number five, he was fine looking. So was Saul. Don't, don't hang too heavy of a hook, uh, hat on that hook, okay? But David had foundation, didn't he? Number six, and it says the Lord was with him. Now listen, I want to say this to you. Never discount anything in your past. God can, he, he's put something in your past. You've experienced something. You've had some ability, some talent, something that, that, that you wonder if you'd ever get it back. And what would life be like if you had it or had opportunity to use it? God can pick that up in the most incredible ways. Something that happened maybe years ago. Something you learned years ago. Something that's been sitting in the closet idle for, for a long time. And give you an opportunity today. The, the worship leader at the church we left in Elkhart. Young man and his family a number of years ago were going through all kinds of difficulty. Marital and, and financial and all kinds of difficulty. Came to Christ... Marvelous, marvelous things. See a young couple come to Christ. Began worshiping, just began attending, began getting plugged in, studying the Word. And we were talking about our worship team one time, and he just happened to mention to somebody off the cuff. Maybe his wife even mentioned, I, I don't remember exactly. He played the trumpet. He played the harmonica. He played, and so they got right on that. Well, he didn't know. It had been rusty. It had been a long time ago. He hadn't played it for years. 
But his wife told us he began taking it out at home and started tuning up a little bit. Wasn't too bad. This guy was actually really good. He's now the worship leader. <laughs> and, and, I mean, he can bring sounds into there that we didn't have before. You know, harmonica is really kind of nice. and Well, it really is in some things. You don't play with everything. But, but you know, all those little touches. Trumpet was, was just great. It wasn't even overbearing. It wasn't even like one of them blaring things. But the Lord was with him. David had never met Saul, but he's the replacement. And God finds a way to bring them together. And it's music, isn't it? I don't know, it might be cooking for you. Might be quilting, might be auto mechanics, might be some technical expertise. I don't know, whatever it is you have, you've got it that can benefit others. God can find it, God can bring it to the surface, God can use it. That's how His program works. You think something you learned a long time ago, and now you've wasted so much time, and, and God wants to draw that seemingly insignificant part of your life back into the present and put you to use for the glory of God. See, David had skills that opened new doors. The palace. Not everybody walked into the palace. He had a skill that could get him into the palace. wonder where your skill can get you into that nobody else can go. And the final thing he did was establish order in the midst of chaos. He established order in the midst of chaos. This is my definition of biblical manhood. Biblical manhood takes the chaos, which is typified by the immature boys. And you can have 30, 40, 50 year old boys. And they bring order into their life, into their family, into their home. David was anointed. He let God open the doors. He was a man after God's own heart. In chapter 16, verse 21, David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. And why did Saul love him so much? Well, verse 23 says, Whenever the Spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his heart, uh, the Spirit from God, and there was an evil spirit that God allowed, not God's Holy Spirit. Don't confuse that. Whenever this evil spirit that God allowed to come onto Saul, David would take his harp and play, and relief would come to Saul, and he'd feel better, and evil spirit would leave him. That means to be wide, to be spacious, to, to give space so as to bring relief. Did you ever, have, did you ever, tell, somebody, did you ever tell somebody, give me space, give me space? Right? You just need a little relief. You need a little... And that's what it's saying. That's what David did for Saul. He was establishing order in the midst of Saul's chaos. I can cite John MacArthur one more time. I was reading something this week in which he said, I don't think there's any excuse for a rebellious child... Children can be under control if they're properly taught by their fathers to obey. I think he's right. But I think what's happened is that fathers have abdicated their responsibility from home. And it's just easier not to deal with it. Just easier not to do it. It's easier to put it over on the wife or someone else. David didn't do that. He's a brave man. He's a warrior. I'm going to put order into the chaos. And that's what we begin to see in Israel. Order begins to be put in place of the chaotic life that they had been living. Now let me close with this. Repentance 
isn't basically a religious word. It, it, it's a word that comes from a culture where people were pretty nomadic. Uh, and they lived in a world with no maps or no street signs. And, you know, it's easy to get lost in a desert. And so they'd, they'd be strolling along, and then they'd realize the countryside doesn't look like it, it, it's supposed to look. I don't, this is unfamiliar. I don't recognize it. And so repentance comes from the two thoughts. One is you finally say to yourself, I'm going in the wrong direction. That's the first act of repentance. And that's what we need to, to look at this morning. Are you going in the wrong direction? Are you about keeping the people happy and keeping the peace and, and just trying to get along? Not necessarily worried about what God has to say, but just trying to make it in life. Are you going in the wrong direction? And the second act of repentance means that I go in the other direction. I turn around. I go in a different direction. So I not only recognize I'm going in the wrong direction, I need to turn around and go in the right direction. Maybe there are dads here this morning, and you've been going in the wrong direction, and there's chaos in your home. And you can ignore it, or you can work later, or you can do whatever you want to do. But there's chaos. And there needs to be a brave, warrior-like individual that comes in and says, I'm going to straighten this up. I'm going to take care of this. I'm going in another direction. And that's a work of a man from the Bible. <clears throat> repentance. Repentance. I've always said a Christian should never get very far away from that discipline. Repentance. Because I don't want to step more than a foot or two off the path. And if I'm off the path, I want to get back on the path. I don't want to wander around out there for who knows how long. And see, Saul couldn't admit it. He couldn't admit, I'm going in the wrong direction. I need to turn around. And so God let him off the hook. 1 Samuel 16, 1. How long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? I have chosen someone else to be king. Someone who is a man after God's own heart. Someone who can establish order in the midst of chaos. Someone that desires to be in relationship with the Almighty God. Demonstrating those God resources that he, he has to draw from. Demonstrating noteworthy accomplishments in his ministry and in his service. Appropriate, edifying, uplifting. He speaks well. Demonstrates spiritual pr prowess. And if you can do that, God will keep you on the hook for his glory and honor, for your well-being and for the advancement of his kingdom in this world. Father, thank you for these minutes together in your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Father, forgive us where our primary concern has been other people and not yourself. has been our own pleasures and desires and worldly views and not having a biblical foundation for making our decisions in this world. Father, we just come before you this morning. And thank you for this prompting. Thank you for this reminder. Thank you for the conviction that comes with the ministry of the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Father, we are at the outset of a study on uh, many, many years of a kingdom. But Father, we are thankful this morning to be part of a great kingdom with a great king who has our 
infinite well-being always before Him. Your words to us, your direction to us, your commands to us are only for our well-being and for the well-being of those that, that we love and cherish. But Father, work in our hearts in these closing minutes we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.